Well, if you have a Bible with you, 1 Peter's the book. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you are the strength of those who know that they're weak and we, we know that we need your help. Uh, please help me to speak truthfully and clearly and please help us to hear what you are saying to us in a way that would transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A um, couple of years ago, I went to Vancouver to um, give some talks. It was my first ever jaunt overseas, and I was staying in this house, and I was using the office of the guy in the house, and he, I was just browsing through his library, and I found a book that I can't remember what it was about or who wrote it, but I remember on the back of it, it had a terrific quote uh, that I'd like to share with you. It said this, the best of friends are those who hear and learn the song in our hearts so that when we forget it, they can sing it back to us. It's kind of good, isn't it? You know, that you, you listen to Anna and say, oh, this is the thing that shapes and moves. But every now and then things happen and we just forget. Um, it goes dim. And a good friend reminds you, oh, that, and, oh of course, what was I thinking? And that's one of the things that the scriptures do. Once you've come to put your faith in Christ, normally through the scriptures, you go back to read the Bible and you come to church and you go to life group and we have the Lord's Supper together and God will remind you of the most beautiful song that transforms us. Now, I think what happens with a book like 1 Peter or any book really when we go through bit by bit by bit in our life groups or a church, you can somehow or other lose the melody of the whole book. So you're looking, and it's right to look at the sections. We've tried to make sure what we do from the front here is hearing that part of 1 Peter in the light of the whole book. But you want to make sure you hear the melody. What is, what is the, great, what's the great tune and the theme that is played in various ways in various parts and adapted as you go? And so that's what we're going to try and do um, today. And I want to draw your attention before we get to the key verse to verse 12 where in chapter 5 where it says this. With the help of Silas, and Silas is a character who pops up in a few parts of the New Testament. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. So what he's saying here is that Silas, and this was not uncommon in, the, in those times, that, that uh, this is Peter's letter, but the guy who actually penned it was Silas. And we know, for example, the book of Romans, in a sense, if you want to be silly, wasn't actually written by Paul, it was written by a guy called Tertius. Because in chapter 16, in passing, Tertius puts a little in brackets, um, I, Tertius, who am writing this to you, send my greetings. Right? And so obviously Paul was, as it were, dictating, uh, and that was a common thing in that culture. So obviously Silas is the guy who's actually writing uh, what Peter has told him to write. And so uh, here's what he says, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. And it is only brief, the five chapters. I've few times this week, trying to make sure that I've properly heard the, the main themes and just projected my pet ideas onto it. I've read and reread and read it again this morning. It doesn't take long. It is fairly brief, but my goodness, there's a lot of stuff there. Uh, and so he, he's written this brief thing. And I like books. Well, I like lots of books in the Bible, but I, I, I like it when a book tells you, this is why I've written this book. And many of you will know famously John does that. He see, John, when he writes the gospel in chapter 20, he tells exactly why he's written the book. And then when we have the letter of John, 1 John, in chapter 5, he tells us why he wrote his letter. 
which is a closely related thing, but, but different to what he says in chapter 5. In one, he says, I've written this, all these accounts of Jesus so that you may know that he is the Son of God and believe and therefore have life. In chapter 5, he writes, I write this to those of you who believe in Jesus that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants them to be certain about where they stand with him. So what Peter here gives us a clue as to what he thinks he's doing in his letter. I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So he says the purpose of his letter is to encourage these Christians. Remember back a couple of months ago, this because they lived in a part of what we would call Turkey, where the Christian gospel was spreading. Peter's almost certainly in Rome, which he calls Babylon, for a number of reasons. And uh, he's writing to encourage them. Now, you don't write to encourage someone unless you think they probably need encouragement. Uh, So he thinks these Christians need help. And the word literal, it's not quite the same as our word to encourage someone is kind of a warm word in our culture. This is a word that can be warm and it can be a bit edgier. And it means to call from beside is what it literally means. It's a bit like when those of you who've done rowing or a sport like that, you're rowing hard and there's someone in the speedboat yelling abuse and helpful tips to you as you row. And if you're doing what they call a piece where you're doing a, you know, like a race thing, they'll often be urging you to come on, you can do more than that. And your coxswain, little bludger, will be down the back at yelling, screaming abuse at people twice as big as him. And um, he'll say things like, Come on, bow side, stroke side, are pulling you around. Or he'll say timing and give you all sorts of tips. And that's what this is saying. This is is to keep us going and to keep us going in in the right direction, in the right timing, etc. It's it's an exhortation that someone comes alongside to call us to keep going because we're going to see there's a real danger for the Christians that he's writing to that they may give up. Uh, They've got good reason to give up, they may think. Certainly others thought they had very, very good reasons to give up. So that's what he's doing. He's writing to encourage, to exhort. And he says he's going to do that by testifying to the true grace of God. So the way that he thinks he'll be able to encourage us as them is to speak to us of the true grace of God. That is the thing that will keep us going. Now, the interesting, the important thing I noticed this week is this. If he hadn't said the word true grace of God... We wouldn't have had to be concerned. What is he saying there? Because obviously if he says the true grace of God, it's possible for people to hear what is a fake view of the grace of God, a false view of the grace of God. There's a view of the grace of God that enables people to go, hey, God is so gracious. It doesn't matter much how we live. I've a few times been, you know, told, both here and other churches, Ian, you don't really understand the grace of God. I thought, um, my hunches I probably understand it about as well as you do, but I'm happy to have another think. Anytime you come and say, as a Christian, we, we need to be doing this. Uh, this is what it... But there's a way of taking the grace of... I've got an old friend who does this. You just can't use anything with the imperative voice. With, ah, you've missed the grace of God, which is baloney. The grace of God in the Scriptures is the thing that motivates us. It causes us to sweat, to roll up our sleeves. Whereas the fake view of grace gets you to go, hmm, doesn't matter, does it? God's ever so terribly nice. Um, let me read you a, 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 quite a famous quote. Some of you will have heard this before from a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a brilliant German uh, theologian, a, a man of sort of upper class culture and, and um, quite a lovely chap. Uh, he led the, ch- the part of the church that stood strong against Hitler. 
and was eventually um, hung from a piano wire just before the prison camp that he was in at Hitler's order was uh, liberated. Uh, and Hitler sent an order through because he hated him with a vengeance. But he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he I think he coined the phrase, certainly I've never, it may have come from earlier that, called cheap grace. And he said he thought the, the problem with the German church then was that it, was, it, had been, it was drunk on cheap grace. So it had nothing to stand on in the end. When push came to shove, uh, they just went under. And he writes things like this. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living, incarnate and Lord. Such grace, a costly grace, is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, the man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price, to buy which the merchant will sell all his good. It's the kingly rule of Christ the Saviour, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which caused him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it forgives sin and justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us all. So the apostle Peter knows that wherever there's a truth that God brings, the devil will almost always make a fake nearby lookalike. And there is a thing which you may have read or you may even look back and think, yeah, I, I once believed that sort of nonsense, a fake grace, which will do us no good. The thing that motivates us is, and causes us to sweat happily and to sing joyfully is real grace. And that's what he wants to remind us of because that's the thing that will keep us going. Now have a look at verse 10 with me, which is kind of the major verse that we'll base our uh, expanse from. He says this, He's been talking about suffering, as he has once or twice. In verse 9, the last word is the same kind of suffering. Now listen to this. The God of all grace, who called you his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and resolute. To him be the power forever and ever. So there's three key words that I think will help us get a handle on what, what the, the melody of this book is, the through line. The first is grace. Now, grace, you know, grace, it's one of those things, if, if a person doesn't get grace, it's almost certain that they haven't got Christianity at all. And I, I just keep meeting people all over the place who, when they explain Christianity, there's nothing like grace anywhere near it. Grace is a type of love. It's where you love the unlovely. It is the opposite of my love for Alison, right? I sometimes sing of that little song. I don't sing it too much of it because that would be unloving. But there's a, is it Alanis Morissette? She's got this lovely song about it's all your fault. Uh, it's a love song saying it's your fault that I'm in love with you. And then that's, that's true with Alison and me. So grace is not like that. Right. Grace is when you love someone in spite of who they are. 
I've heard, oh, I don't want to be loved like that. Well, then have no love at all then, my friend. That's, you know, if you want God to love you for who you are, it just ain't going to happen quite like that. Uh, he has finer eyes and higher standards, but he will love you in grace, and he really loves when he loves you graciously. It's where God knows what I'm like, and he loves me anyhow. Right? Um, you think I'm hard to love. You've got no flipping idea. Right? Um, it, it's much more impressive that God puts up with me somewhat gladly. Grace is that sort of love. And as we say, that's why songs that sing about grace often have the word amazing in them. Because grace, oh, really? Really? And he, Peter knows, as the song knows, that the Christian life starts with grace. You remove grace, there ain't no Christianity. You remove the grace of God at work in my heart, I ain't ever going to become a Christian. Right? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's what grace does. So he starts, so Peter rightly says, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory, he did to you when you became a Christian what he did at Lazarus's tomb. He spoke to the dead and raised them out, and out they came. He called us into his love and grace. The God of all grace who called you into what? His eternal glory. Now it's possible, isn't it, with a word like glory, just to think to... You know, to, to not get it. It's one of those words that gets put to death because it's used casually often. Glory, the, the Old Testament word which is translated glory comes from the sense of weight. It's heavy. There's something about the glory of God that's weighty. It's substantial. It's the opposite. See, the wicked, the Bible says, who often look quite prosperous in the short term, he says in the end the, the wicked are like chaff. Right? They're just, there's just nothing there. It's like where Solomon talks, uh, the book we're going to look at next year, God willing, Ecclesiastes, uh, where he talks about vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. It's emptiness if you look at it, if you actually focus on it. But this is, this is the opposite. This is God. This is the thing that the human heart longs for. It's substance, something enduring, something good, something true, something beautiful that won't get old and weary and pass. You won't get tired of it. It's substantial and beautifully good. Every time you see anything beautiful, whether it's in the face of a baby or the fingernails of a baby, so I think oh, they're amazing little things, or whether it be the beauty of a fully formed adult, whether it be the beauty of a bird or, or a sunset or anything, every little inkling of beauty and glory we see is just a tiny reflection of what we will see when we see God himself, the architect of all that is good and beautiful. It will be overwhelming. And that's when the Bible does that stuff which you've looked at where it has, it has sort of silly things. It says that the streets of the city of God will be made of gold that's so pure it's see-through. Now that's just silly because you can purify gold as much as you like. It doesn't ever become see-through. In fact, it would be disappointing if it did. Glass is significantly cheaper than gold. But it's saying the streets are paved with gold. Why? Because they're saying, you know, people will kill you for gold. People will sell their soul for gold. Some of you may be in danger of doing that very thing. Right? No one kills you for a bag of bitumen or what the Roman roads are made of dirt and rocks. And what it's saying is the most beautiful, the most expensive thing in this good creation of God will be just used to pave the roads there. Right? Who knows what the rest of the thing's made of? Right? So it's trying to say no matter what beauty we enjoy, and the Bible's big on beauty. What God has in mind for us, will just be, it, will, it will be overwhelming. And I, 
I've, had, I've been blessed. I've, I've had lots of joys and pleasures in my life. I really have. I'm a spoiled... Well, I don't think God spoils his children, but I'm pretty flipping close, I think. Um, but five minutes in heaven, and I mean this quite the five minutes in the new creation, will make all the pleasures I've enjoyed in my entire life look like nothing. It'll, it'll be as, as important to me then as a few minutes sucking on a dummy was when I was nine months old. Right? There's just no comparison. But it's worth comparing it. God in his grace has called you to eternal glory. Eternal. Right? You might live for 100 years, you might live for 110 years. That's nothing to eternity. And we know what it's like in life, don't we? We make small sacrifices for big gains. We say, well, I won't do that for now because I'm hoping to get this. And if you don't make those sort of decisions, you end up finding yourself deeply frustrating and shallow. Grace calls us to the life of glory. So you're not having to always deal with, as Jimi Hendrix says, castles made of sand that melt into the sea eventually, uh, which is what all that we see does. So God has called us by his grace and kindness into eternal glory. What's the problem? Why do we need exhorting then? Verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you? Just before this, it talks about all the same kind of suffering. The problem with it is this. When God calls us to himself, he calls us, and the Bible is so clear on this, he calls us to a life that will have significant amounts of suffering. The idea that if you follow Christ, you'll avoid suffering is a filthy lie. That can only be true if the Bible is full of nonsense. I know there are some preachers who say it. Well, I've been told they have. I haven't heard them, but I've been told they do. Right? No, no, the Bible assures you. And there's a suffering you get just because you're, part, you're a human being and the world is sadly broken. And there's a suffering you get just because you follow Christ that you could avoid if you stop following Christ. And friends, that is one of the reasons why you will suffer for Christ. Societies like people to conform. They say they want you to be a rugged individual, but they don't. They want you to say that and buy the, the product that they're selling you. If you're a misfit, life's going to be hard. And one of the verses that you heard read is, we are foreigners and exiles. We are refugees in a foreign country. Our home is elsewhere. Right? And so you will at times find yourself out of step and people don't like that. So we suffer. Or as it says in verse 6, because it uses a number of different words to talk about the suffering, because it is one of the great through themes of the book. Verse 6, talking about our inheritance, which is another way of talking the glory. Verse 6 starts with, uh, chapter 1 starts with celebrating our hope and our inheritance. Verse 6, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, when you talk about suffering that causes you grief, you, don't, you get an awful lot of suffering that isn't grief. Grief's a very intense sense of the injustice or the pain. So we're called by grace to eternal glory, but along the way you will experience grief. And the grief will often cause you to pull back from following Christ. Because with a lot of suffering, you can avoid it if you just... Well, if you know what Jesus says, you know, because um, Josh quoted from Mark 8, you might remember where Jesus says, um, if you're ashamed of me in this sinful and adulterous age, I will be ashamed of you 
on the day you stand before your father. Right? So he says, if you're, if, if you're I don't want to admit I follow Jesus, uh, he says, he will, he will not, you're obviously not one of his. Right? You're not one of his people and friends. But actually, I, I left out somewhere. That's why you've got to bring, you can't trust Anglicans. What he says in Mark 8 is this, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you. It is the words of Jesus that I think you and I are tempted to be ashamed of because he has very different views on quite a number of significant moral and relational questions. And you can pretend that he hasn't said it. You can always find someone who will write you a book saying, hey, the stuff that's out of step with our culture, we can, we can rejig that for you. Um, they're easy to find. Um, but he says there will be a temptation to be ashamed of his words. You can avoid the suffering, but it's dangerous. Sometimes you simply have to say yes when, when people are discussing things, not just pretend that we agree with them, but gently, if the conversation comes around to you, own the fact that you think Jesus is right on areas of human life and relationships, etc. And the question is, is it worth suffering that? Is it worth the abuse that it talks of in chapter 4? Or the misrepresentation? Or what Jesus says at the, in the, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. Let me read it to you. This is Jesus. Sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit that Phil was, is teaching the young ones. Listen to where he finishes on this. And this is the, the only thing of the, of the blessed he gives, the Beatitudes, where he says it twice, is this last one. So he obviously thinks it matters. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed means enviable. That's, that's, oh, they're the ones you want to be like. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on, which he doesn't do with any of the other blesseds. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before me. We've got to be very careful of just smiling. Yeah, that's nice, Jesus. No, no, no. He means it with dead seriousness. As he says to the disciples in John, he says, they hated me without a cause. They will hate you without a cause. Now, of course, sometimes we do dumb stuff, right? And people don't like us because we've done dumb stuff. But I think Christians are far too quick to assume when their workmates or family people at some gathering are speaking badly of some Christian that the person has behaved badly. That happens sometimes. Very often, they're speaking evil against people falsely, as Jesus says. Be, be slow to believe the reported nincompootness, insensitivity, brutality, etc., hatefulness of other Christians. Um, yeah, are we jerks? Exhibit A. But, but I'm saying we, we, need, we need to be aware of the fact Jesus has forewarned us of this, right? that people say things, and I've heard all sorts of Christians agree that someone who they've heard about on the news is a jerk, and then I've done a bit of background, they haven't said what was said, they didn't say it the way it was said, but they were hated anyhow. Right? So just be careful on so too quickly saying, yeah, yeah, all those Christians are pretty nasty. Uh, most Christians are somewhat like the Christians that you know. Soppy, if anything, really. You know. um, but here's what he's saying to his brothers and sisters. Grace has started it. Glory is where we're going. 
but there'll be grief on the way. And he says, don't be surprised. You heard, you heard the passages read. Don't be surprised when you suffer in this way. Never. It's, it's not fun. It's awful to suffer, to be lied about, to be um, whatever, whatever form of suffering you endure. Uh, Alice and I went and saw um, a friend took us to see this play yesterday, which I want to recommend. Uh, I'm not getting the money for this, but if, if you've got a few hours to kill in Sydney, because I don't think it's coming to Canberra, sadly, called The Dismissal, which is about Big Goff and Malcolm Fraser and Mr Kerr and all these other people. It was, it was fun, terrific singing, etc. It was a great time. You'll probably enjoy it more if you're a Labor Party voter than if you're a Liberal Party voter. That's okay. What do you expect if you go to the theatre? But, um, but it, it was a thoroughly good time. It was great. Um, but the, the interesting part was at one point towards the end when the sort of show was almost over, they had a, a little sort of house slide night projector and they ran a quick run through the leading politicians since Gough and Malcolm. And most of the you could feel them sort of boo when John Howard came on and, you know, and, and, uh, um, and et cetera, et cetera. But the interesting thing was when ScoMo came on. Now, I'm not a fan of ScoMo, even though we went to the same school. Um, it's probably a vote against him right there, isn't it? But he, um, he went to Sydney High, but he, um, he comes on and you could feel the crowd dislike, you know. It was kind of fun listening to it. And then they came to a part when he was saying, don't put your trust in politicians, trust rather in God. The mocking that came. To, now, I don't think it was just that ScoMo may well have been a bit of a hypocrite, depending on what part of the media you read. I just felt that's, that's what happens if someone speaks about God and says, trust God, etc. Now, I don't know, I'm not a heart reader, but I wasn't the slightest bit surprised, nor was I particularly aggrieved. So, mm-hmm, yeah. right. How dare he speak about God? Even our Constitution does. Um, but I just think you'll find that there is, a, there is a hostility in the heart. Remember, we follow the crucified Christ. People had their chance to get their hands on God and we murdered him. And the Jewish culture, as I understand it, was the finest religious culture in the world and the Roman legal system was the finest legal system in the world and we hated him. And if you think we're better people than they are, you are kidding yourself. There is in the heart both a longing for God and a hostility to God. You will suffer. It's one of the great themes through the book. And the problem is if you suffer... The reason why we make people suffer is we're trying to behave, sort of correct their behaviour. People do it with pets, they do it with children, they do it with adults. Some of the very few effective uh, sort of behaviour change things that the Australian government has ever run have because they had a serious threat, like AIDS, it'll kill you. The other one that actually worked was drink driving, because people began to hear friends who lost their licence, etc. And that actually, but it almost always, even with adults, unless there's a real cost involved if I get caught, we don't change. That's why we make people suffer. That's why a culture will make you suffer, because it wants you to change and get in line with the free thinking. So that, that's what he says. We need to be encouraged. We need to be pushed on. We suffer because of our identity. There was quite a lot of stuff in 1 Peter about who we are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. So that's a word of someone's treasure. You know, I can't help but think about my 34-year-old daughter, who I still, I think, if a fire went up in her, the flat that she lives in, she would grab Peppy the Green Monkey, which we bought for, for $1.50. 
Uh, and for some reason, that's, you know, I don't blame it. It's, it's cute. But it's saying that we are God's special treasure. Why does God tell you that? Because you would never imagine it. What do you mean the God who owns the whole universe? I'm his special treasure. I'm the apple of his eye. Are you kidding me? No, no, you are. And because of your identity, you have a destination. And because of your identity, you'll be out of step with our culture. You will be an alien and an exile, like a refugee, etc. That's why we suffer. Is it worth it? That's the question you've got to ask, friends. Is it worth it? Suffering. And the two things that, that this letter wants to say is, well, the answer is absolutely. It contrasts, as that verse says in chapter 5, it's only, it's only a brief moment that you'll suffer. After you've suffered a little while, that's all it is, it's a little while, it's a moment. Even if you're put in prison for the whole the rest of your life and the last couple of decades are pretty miserable, it is nothing. And that has happened to some of our Christian brothers and sisters, as you know. It is nothing compared to the eternity. It doesn't feel like nothing. You need to be reminded. It's what we're here for. I do remember being at dinner with, there's a lady at Bible College with Jan Smith, who was, um, the lecturers get it wrong and say, oh, that's what, Jan, you really like rugby league? She said, no, I don't. I like Parramatta. So she was very clear. I'm not a rugby league, I'm a Parramatta fan. Anyhow, she, she hurt her neck permanent, or semi-permanently just getting some clothes out of the washing machine one day and did something terrible to her neck. And she, was, she lived in a fair amount of discomfort. I haven't seen her in over a decade. But I remember being at dinner, her and her husband and a few of us, and she said, I, don't, I can't do this forever. I can't live with this pain forever. And her husband very gently said, sweetie, it is not forever. I thought he was a pretty brave man. You can get smashed around for that sort of... <laughs> that, that. I mean, I'm not just saying from your wife, but anyone, if you say, look, I know you... But, but he was right to say, Jan, it's not forever. It is, as the Apostle Paul says, a brief momentary affliction versus an eternal weight of glory. So the, the letter is to encourage us, to keep us focused on the grace of God. And where do you see that? You see it in Jesus, don't you? There's a real warmth in the way that Peter speaks of Jesus. If you read it even perhaps aloud to yourself, he does this at least twice. He's talking about our suffering and how we should do it. He references Jesus as an example and can't help himself but then speak about he shed his blood to redeem us from our sins and win for us a place in eternity. By his wounds you've been healed. He just can't help himself. He's in love with Jesus. And there's this real warmth. If you get him near that area, off, off he goes. Right? Another one of Peter's loop-the-loops in his letter, in the logic of his letter. But he goes, the, the question is, is Jesus worth it? And the question is obviously yes. And Christians are described in chapter 1, verse 8, as this. Though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus Christ is absolutely worth it. Is the inheritance worth it? Certainly is. Is he worth it, the one who's loved you and died for you? Well, the better you know him the more joyfully you will even go into suffering in his name. So that's the call, friends. He, wants, he writes so that we will be encouraged by testifying to the grace of the true grace of God. Then he says, stand fast in it. 
In the same way as Jesus says, we should pray, deliver us from temptation, lead us not, no, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. Jesus knows that following him is a dangerous business. There is a strong opposition, which is spoken of as the lion seeking someone to devour. And here he says, if you don't stand fast, you will be swept away and you'll lose the grace of God. You'll finish up with some nonsense instead. And therefore you won't know Christ as the one who's loved you and died for you and has brought you an extremely fantastic inheritance. So he's saying stand fast. Be careful if people try to redefine Christianity for you. You always got to be willing to go back to the scriptures. But I'm surprised at how quickly people will not talk to anyone who they know about what the scriptures say, read a book that says what they like, meet an impressive looking person, right? and the grace of God has been redefined. Stand fast, he says, stand fast. It's a, it's a true story, but we're not quite sure of all the details. Of Winston Churchill, when he goes back to the school that he went to, I don't think it was a local government school. He went back, it was about two years into the war. The tide was turning a tiny little bit. And he goes back and gives a famous, as I said, there's some argument back exactly what he said, but it seems to he said this to these, the kids at his school. This is the lesson we've learnt. Never give up. Never give in. And then he apparently said quite loudly, never, never, never give up. You're on a dangerous journey, brothers and sisters. It's much more dangerous in some ways for some of our brothers and sisters in other countries in the world, but it's dangerous enough for you. There'll be suffering that'll, that'll nudge you to correct your behaviour so you don't get it again. And in danger, the grace to glory road. It's a dangerous journey we're on. But Churchill goes on says, never yield to force. Never yield to apparently overwhelming might. Never give up. And I think that's part of what Peter's saying. He's saying, don't, don't be a fool and give up your eternity for a moment of peace or for wealth or whatever else. It's worth it. And more importantly, he is worth it, isn't he? Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the bluntness in the way that you talk to us. Uh, we don't particularly like suffering. I don't like unfair suffering when people say things about us that aren't true. But Lord, we thank you that you forewarned us. In fact, you promised us it would be like this until you return. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have loved us. You've suffered in our place. It is by your wounds that we've been wonderfully healed. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to lift up our eyes to see that this brief momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory. Help us, Lord God, like the apostles did and many of our brothers and sisters do, to even suffer with a measure of honour, to suffer for knowing you, for knowing something of your love. Help us, Lord, uh, to walk this road to glory, rejoicing always in your grace, willing to bear grief. In Jesus' name, amen.